Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. We have a very special episode today and I am super excited about it. So one of the first episodes that we ever did was about our first horror movies that we watched as kids that made us turn into lifelong horror fans. Since we are now in our second year, we thought it was about time that we do an episode about the first true crime stories that we remember hearing about that turned us into lifelong true crime fans. And honestly, before we go any further, I need to make a slight confession here. I was a true crime late bloomer, honestly. Uh, My mom's always been a true crime buff, like literally my entire life. And while she'd spare me like all the gruesome details, she wasn't shy about discussing cases that freaked her out or, you know, indulging me in macabre legend, stuff like that. For instance, at a young age, I, I knew in theory anyway, who Charles Manson and the family were and kind of what they did, or at least that they were evil people and did horrible things. But I kind of ignored true crime as a kid because like for me, it, like that was mom's boring stuff. I was more into scary movies and, and stuff like that rather than crime, which now I think was my super lame ass way of rebelling as like a fourth or fifth grader. So uh, yeah, revelations all around this week. Um, but I was having trouble thinking of something to do for this episode. And I talked to my mom just last night after I had come up with my idea and asked her what she thought and if she had remembered me talking about anything as a kid. And literally she and my dad in unison talked about this story. Um, They also talked about a story that Sharon is going to tell us a little bit later, which I'm psyched to hear about because I don't know this story. Okay, because I love a good, good story. I'm calling dibs and I'm going to go first with mine so that I can sit back once I'm done and let Sharon tell us all a creepy, creepy tale. Aw, Sharon, it's just like when we were little. <laughs> all right, I'm very, very curious to hear what your story is because you've been giving me, um, you haven't even been giving me hints all week, but you've been very mysterious about what you're going to be talking about. And I was trying to think back to our childhood And honestly, the story that I'm telling is the only thing I can really think of that stands out around that time. So please indulge me and the rest of our listeners. What are you going to be talking about? Okay, I'm going to get to it. Um, I just wanted to clarify that this is not really your typical true crime story, but it does involve all the goods, mysterious deaths, multiple what the fuck moments like honestly I actually have more questions now after researching this as an adult and like with the internet at my disposal than I did it as a kid it was also the turning point for me it was the first time I really stopped and paid full attention to a real life story um, one that ended up bridging my love of horror while planting the seedlings of what would become a full-fledged true crime obsession But it also sort of drove home the fact that, you know, sometimes even when you're a kid, mom and dad can't always make it better. So enough with the foreplay. Let's get on to it. I'm going to talk about the death of actress Heather O'Rourke from the Poltergeist (gasps) movies. Oh, shit. Oh, good one. Oh, my God. Okay. Yes. I'm excited. Go. Well, no, I'm not excited. (laughs) 
poor choice of words, but God, I haven't thought about this in so, so long. And I forgot a lot of the details. So yes. We talk about this all the time, but uh, Sharon and I have mentioned that uh, when we were like, you know, in the third grade, we would play poltergeist in my parents' basement as kids do. Um, But I was legit freaking obsessed hardcore with those movies, particularly with the character of Carol Ann, who, just to refresh everyone's memories in case, she was the young daughter in all three films, actually, that was kidnapped and stalked by ghosts. She was close to our age. The actress was. I would scour every People magazine that my aunt would give me when she was done or any teeny bopper magazine we could find just to like get info on her because she just seemed cool and she was in my favorite scary movie. So like we should be BFFs, right? Um, And she, her sudden death was utterly and completely shocking because she was freaking 12 years old and I'm not, I'm already dating myself, but I, I was a slightly younger than at the time, as was Sharon. And that shit didn't happen. 12-year-olds did not die. Um, the story was, and to me, is still mysterious. And it actually eventually led to litigation. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to jump in. Right in. Uh, Heather Michelle O'Rourke was born, for a little backstory, on December 27th in 1975 in San Diego, Uh, Her parents were Kathleen and Michael O'Rourke. Mom was a seamstress. Dad was a carpenter. And then Heather had an older sister, Tammy, who was also a dancer and an actress. And we're going to get back to Tammy in a little bit. But just for us to fill you guys in, in 1981, Kathleen and Michael divorced. Mom and her two daughters, uh, Heather and Tammy, actually spent quite a few years living in a trailer park in Anaheim, California. And then eventually, um, Kathleen married Jim Peel in 1984. And that was Heather and Tammy's stepdad. So back in 1980, Tammy O'Rourke, Heather's older sister, had a small role in the MGM movie musical Pennies from Heaven, which is set during the Great Depression. And fun fact, it stars Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters, and horse talk horror favorite jessica fucking harper thanks imdb i just found that out anywho heard of it crazy right anywho as he explained in an interview with american premiere magazine producer steven spielberg was looking for a quote beautific four-year-old child every mother's dream unquote for his lead in the horror film poltergeist while eating in the mgm commissary Spielberg saw then five-year-old Heather O'Rourke having lunch with her mother while her older sister was shooting the Pennies from Heaven movie. Spielberg approached the family after lunch, offered Heather the poltergeist role, and she was signed the next day. Um, Heather's performance as Carol Ann led to several television and TV movie roles. She worked with Disney in 83. She did episodes of Chips, Webster, The New Leave It to Beaver, our house and then she had a reoccurring role on happy days which that's she was like five at the time that's crazy impressive she also did a few like made for tv movies and of course starred in both poltergeist two and three i actually remember her from happy days which is weird oh my god i love that you remember that (laughs) but knowing sharon it's not that weird no it's not at all but i love it put it on the list Uh, Anyway, uh, Heather's success did eventually allow her family to purchase a nicer home in Big Bear Lake, California. 
Um, but older sister Tammy claims that Heather was never really aware that she was, quote, a star. Um, she and both Tammy and Heather attended public school as opposed to private when they weren't filming stuff. Uh, Heather was very popular. She was president of her fifth grade class and she had a photographic memory. So at age five, she learned all her lines for Poltergeist in a day, including those of her co-stars. Like, wow. Um, in early 1987, Heather contracted, okay, Sharon, you might have to help me out, but I did try to phonetically spell it, Gerardisis. Uh, can you, I, I don't, you have to spell it. <laughs> I don't know what you're reading. Uh, it's G-I-A-R-D-I-A-S-I-S. It's uh, a parasite that lives in water. Giardisis. I think it might be Giardisis because I was close. Uh, thank you, though, because I, I, I was also very I was also like excited to tell this story because I knew that if I got confused about medical terms, I could be like, Sharon, how do you pronounce that? Um, anyway, thank you for that, Sharon. Um, but well, I she, don't know if I pronounce it right either. <laughs> so. It's a Giardia infection. And then it says Giardiasis. Giardiasis. That's actually how Google pronounces it. They spelled it phonetically that way, and at the time it made sense, but that was yesterday or two days ago. Who knows? Anyway, back to Heather. She got that disease, that that uh, illness. Is a, paras- a parasite? She contracted that parasite. Let's go with that. It's easier to say. From drinking well water at her family's Big Bear home, and at the time, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and prescribed cortisone injections as treatment. Um, it was Wait, also- can I could just cut you off really quick? <laughs> so I apologize. Spencer pulled up something about the parasite that she contracted. It has another term as well that's easier to pronounce, and I'm not even making this up. It's beaver fever. <laughs> it's what? Say it again. Beaver fever. Sharon likes to laugh at the end of her sentences when she thinks something is really, really funny, so you sometimes lose the end of it, but yeah, yeah beaver <laughs> fever. So you could say she contracted beaver fever. <laughs> you know, I bet Heather would have laughed at that. <laughs> um, thank you. That's much easier to say. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are not making fun of the death of a little girl, but who I'm seriously some some of the terms that they use um, in the medical beaver world. Beaver fever, are, really? They couldn't do any better than that. Seriously. I, exactly. Exactly. And the 14 uh, year old boy that lives inside me just right. thinks it's hilarious. Well, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I was giggling too. <laughs> yes, we are all 14 inside. Sorry, back back to your story. So so the beaver fever cleared up. <laughs> um, but she was still showing internal swelling by the intestines, hence the cortisone treatments and the Crohn's diagnosis at the time. It was during this time that she was in what, 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 Chicago, filming Poltergeist 3, which was fun fact, claimed that she didn't like Poltergeist 2 because it wasn't scary enough. I just think that's hilarious. Unfortunately, while filming Poltergeist 3, her mom, Kathleen, talked about how Heather was very self-conscious because the cortisone treatment she was receiving caused facial swelling of the cheeks. I actually just rewatched this movie and I mean, I know about it. So I noticed it, but I didn't think she looked that bad, but it's a common side effect with uh, 
long-term steroid use they call it moon face but yeah I I do remember that as a as a kid that she had that yeah totally so Poltergeist 3 wrapped uh on January 31st 1988 O'Rourke began exhibiting what just seemed like flu-like symptoms uh the following morning she actually got up and told her mother she wanted to go back to school but she was unable to swallow her breakfast and her mom noticed that her fingers were blue and eventually she collapsed in her family's home Mm. heather was rushed to community hospital and we're going to go with el cayon in california on route she suffered cardiac arrest uh, but paramedics were able to restart her heart at 9 25 a.m after being airlifted to the Children's Hospital of San Diego, it was discovered that she had intestinal stenosis. I'm pretty sure I got that one right. Uh, she went into emergency surgery and survived it, actually, but had another cardiac arrest while being transferred to the recovery room. CPR was performed for over 30 minutes, but at 2.43 p.m., Heather O'Rourke was pronounced dead. Um, the cause of death was ruled congenital stenosis of the intestine complicated by septic shock. Uh, So Dr. Daniel Hollander, the head of gastroenterology, I cannot talk. Good thing I'm not a doctor. Gastroenterology. There we go. Big words. Uh, Over at the University of California, Irvine Medical Center, uh, Dr. Hollander stated that he felt O'Rourke's death was, quote, distinctly unusual as she had lacked prior symptoms of any bowel defect. He said, quote, I would have expected a lot of digestive difficulties throughout her life and not just to have developed a problem all of a sudden. However, and this is not a joke, uh, the head of gastroenterology at Children's Hospital of LA, whose name is Dr. Frank Sinatra. No joke. Do you you want me to tell you how to say that correctly? (laughs) Gastroenterology. Thank you. I I was close. But uh, good old Doc Frank Sinatra, um, again, no joke. That was his name. He stated that he thought it was possible for the congenital bowel narrowing to set to cause sudden death without symptoms of an infection prior and it still could have caused the bowel to rupture so I'm already sort of confused but stay with me shortly well a few months after her death in April of 1988 um, her mom Heather's mom Catherine O'Rourke Peel was her full married name filed a wrongful death suit in California Superior Court in San Diego County claiming her daughter's illness was misdiagnosed, which eventually caused her death. The suit's primary defendants were the Kaiser Foundation Hospital and Southern California Permanente, Permanente. Mm-hmm. Medical Group. I'm just to stick with Kaiser going forward. Uh, Kathleen states that she received a letter which was dated March 30th of 1987, so prior to Heather's death, from Dr. James Tipton of L.A.'s Kaiser Foundation Hospital, saying that there was, quote, conclusive radiographic... Radiographic? Yep. Thank you. Evidence for Crohn's disease, and in case you don't know, it's a chronic inflammation of the bowel, 
In an article by the AP News on May 25th, 1988, Sanford M. Gage, the O'Rourke family's attorney, stated, quote, the doctors failed to recognize that she had a bowel obstruction since birth and misdiagnosed her condition. As a result, they prescribed medication instead of a relatively simple operation that would have cured her. Jesus. And then, unquote, er, you know, unquote, and then her mom, quote, says, it was an intestinal blockage that had probably been present since birth. The x-rays taken, if properly read, would have disclosed that this was the kind of condition that should have been treated surgically. So not much detail as is the case with legal stuff, is really available as to the outcome of this lawsuit. But through a few online legal databases, I was able to get enough info to see that Kathleen Peel settled out of court for an undisclosed amount with the Kaiser Foundation. Uh, My guess is that the Kaiser Foundation did the usual, we don't want a scandal, let's throw money at this settling out of court is not an admission of guilt necessarily but it doesn't really answer a lot of the questions that i have still um so stick with me because we still got a little bit more to go remember tammy her old heather's older older sister who she was visiting when she got cast for poltergeist literally the night before we record recorded this i stumbled on a podcast called fan counters think like close encounters but it's like if you're a fan so fan counters um and it's hosted by a gentleman named nick no last name listed but he in november of 2018 had an interview with none other than tammy walker heather's existing sister Um, Sharon, you'll be happy to know that tammy left the entertainment business and is actually a working nurse she lives in California and she says that she's a nurse within the prison systems and she didn't really get any more specific with that. But hey, good on her. Good for her. She's married. She has a family. She's happy. She did say that due to the lawsuit with Kaiser and I'm assuming whatever NDA they had to sign, she couldn't really talk a whole lot specifically about her sister's death. She did, however, disclose that Heather had a known congenital, quote, problem since birth. And that's literally what she said. She didn't go further with that. She didn't offer any details. So regardless of Heather's death, I want to be clear that I'm not placing blame, accusing her parents or anyone of neglect or malpractice, nothing like that. I'm just a little confused because did Heather's family ever inform her doctors, at least with that initial Crohn's diagnosis, that she had a known congenital condition in retrospect it sounds like they kind of knew about it but again this is like 32 years of hindsight so that does wonders for people clearly I'm no doctor but uh I I do kind of agree from the casual observer reading that I did you know no medical training but I kind of agree with Daniel Hollander and his observation that it just seems odd that this severe of a condition came on so suddenly as opposed to showing signs like throughout her short life. Well, and also she didn't say what type of congenital condition she had, right? She just said that she had some type of congenital problem. Right. She, since like, birth, which yeah. could be anything. I mean, it doesn't have to do with her intestinal problems. It could have been a congenital heart condition, which may have nothing to do with it or... It could be any any problem with any part of the body that she's born with. So who really knows? And 
I'm guessing it was probably documented somewhere in her medical records. If she had this, someone would have written it down and hopefully whoever was treating her would have read through all her previous medical history and would have been aware of it. I think that that actually plays into the lawsuit. And again, this is me totally, this is not like any evidence I found. But one thing that was mentioned um, that Kathleen, her mother, had mentioned when like pursuing the lawsuit, she said that the group that they would see of doctors, it wasn't like it was one specific group. They all worked together, but you wouldn't necessarily see see the same doctor every time you went. Mm -hmm. And I remember in the 80s, for a short time, like my family and I had a health plan like that and nothing like this ever happened. But I, I kind of could see how if it was recorded in her files, it could have gotten overlooked. But it just for sure. There was no electronic medical records back then. I mean, even today, not all hospitals and facilities are equipped with electronic medical records. There's still people using paper charts and that stuff yeah, it, it is very easy for that stuff to get lost in the shuffle, especially if you're seeing multiple practitioners. Um, and if you do have some um, major medical problems where you're required to see multiple doctors, yes, absolutely, that stuff can just go to the wayside and get completely overlooked. I guess I'm a little confused because the way that I heard it when you were describing the situation was that it. I didn't take it that the mother, that the family knew before her problem in the hospital that she had a congenital issue i thought that maybe they sort of figured out that she had a congenital issue after the fact thank you for mentioning that spencer because that threw me too because the mom like i found like old people magazine articles online that i remember like physically reading but her mom kind of said it was probably there but in this interview with tammy she was clear about it she said oh yeah no we she had something since birth but she didn't specify what so this is why I'm like okay I can see now a little bit more clearly how so many wires could have gotten crossed but I'm also kind of like well at least her sister seems really sure you would think somebody would have said something during the Crohn's disease situation like you do know she has whatever the condition was I but I don't know because I don't think they can be specific, obviously, because of the lawsuit. So to be clear, HIPAA, I'm not. Oh. <laughs> it's, I mean, with HIPAA, and it's it's none of our business anyways, what her her medical conditions are. So, yeah, that's also true. That And it was the 80s. <laughs> true. Um, but like, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm building any sort of conspiracy here literally you could do a quick google search and find more horrifying bs than like i could even handle um i think i'm naive but wow there's a lot of crazy ass conspiracy theories about how they work on the internet and they're very very strange and creepy mm-hmm. um clearly 32 years later this, st- this st- story is still on my mind and it was truly the first obsession I had with a story that wasn't told to me by someone else or that I didn't overhear while like I was supposed to be in bed during unsolved mysteries in many ways it sort of remains unsolved for me just because so many of those puzzle pieces are missing and we probably will never get them at the same time I feel like I kind of got a chance to know Heather a little bit more if I could say it that way because 
I got to hear more about her as a kid. Um, her sister told this hilarious story about how they were collecting stickers and they were in an elevator to go to the Jerry Lewis telethon. And Heather dropped all of her stickers. And so Tammy tried to help her pick them up off the elevator floor. They reached the ground floor. The elevator doors opened. And Heather said, Tammy, you dropped your stickers all over and walked right out of the elevator. Like, she sounded awesome. And who, like... It's just horrible because like she could have been a force to be reckoned with and could have maybe have been working with Mike Flanagan, who knows, or even been at that level because she wanted to direct. So that's my story. 32 years later, and I'm still heartbroken. But that is this tragic story of Heather O'Rourke, Carol Ann Freeling from Poltergeist. Shit. Well, thank you. I do definitely remember when she passed away because we were a few years younger than her and we're such fans of that movie. I've got shit my grandma kept that I'm going to put online that I was embarrassed to find as an adult. Not like (laughs) anything gross, but like, yeah, I was obsessed. Yeah, it was really sad when she died. I couldn't believe it because you're right. When you're kids, you just didn't, I didn't know any other children who died when I was little, neither of us did, I don't think. I mean, right. obviously it happens and it's horrible when it happens, but it was not something that either one of us dealt with. Personally, this was like the closest thing is, you know, seeing an actress that we both really liked and liked her movies pass away. It was just so sad and tragic. Totally. And po- like you said, possibly could have been prevented. Yeah, and I didn't realize she was that smart. Like, obviously, she seemed like a bright kid, but the fact that she, like, memorized the Poltergeist script literally, like, in an hour, that's just... She's brilliant. Like, who knows? So, that's my story. On a lighter note, uh, Heather's famous line, they're here from the first Poltergeist movie, that is ranked as at number 69 on the American Film Institute's list of 100 movie quotes. Another fun fact... Heather being five years old when she filmed the first Poltergeist, uh, she was super excited and interested in the skeletons that they used. Uh, I know Sharon and I (laughs) have talked at length about how they were real, but she thought they were cool. (laughs) They didn't scare her at all. Um, Maybe she would have grown up to be a doctor. Right. Among many other things. Tammy was asked during her interview um, if Heather and her family went to the funeral of Dominique Dunn, uh, the actress who, of course, played uh, Carol Ann and Robbie in the original Poltergeist film's older sister, who also tragically passed away before her time. Another story we might get into another time, and lots of you probably know it, but uh, this is what I wanted to make sure Sharon knew. Tammy said that they didn't really know Dominique that much because she was older, but they were buds with Oliver Robbins, who played the brother Robbie, and Sharon had a big crush on him when we were little. For like two seconds when I was like eight. (laughs) And then he got braces that exploded everywhere, and you were like, yep, I'm done. Um, (laughs) I was like, ooh, who's this Christian Slater guy? <laughs> bye, bye, Oliver Robbins. Later. Um, the other thing that Tammy said that I swear, I've, like, I think since a young age, sworn that this was true. And so I just feel sort of indicated, but there's no proof. Tammy swears that in the beginning of the film Poltergeist 2, 
that there was a very brief yet fleeting mention about how Dana, the older sister, decided not to go with the family to the grandma's house and stayed with friends because she's clearly not in Poltergeist 2. I also remember hearing that very briefly the first time I saw it. However, I've not been able to find that line since. So kind of weird. Um, lastly, about the Poltergeist movies, we could go on all day about them, but this fucked me up hard. I guess the original ending of Poltergeist 3 has been up for discussion like heatedly online again unbeknownst to me completely but people were like I found some posts where people were like come on MGM release the final cut you know you want to and the studio has always said that they never reshot the ending you know they had wrapped before Heather passed away Tammy confirms that at the end of Poltergeist 3 they were gonna fucking kill Carol Ann what you can't do that (laughs) yeah And then they were like, like they shot it and everything. And then after she passed, they were like, "Mm, maybe not. And so the ending is now what we see where Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen are hugging. Oh, Donna from our our friend from Twin Peaks, a.k.a. Laura or Laura Flimboyle. Sorry. And Heather O'Rourke's character is laying in their arms. Um, so we assume she's alive, but like it sounded like they for real were going to have a death scene. And I guess uh, Nick from Fan Counters podcast interviewed Zelda uh, Rubenstein before she passed. And she was very terse and was like, I don't remember. I don't know. I don't remember what they shot. Whatever. I don't know. And like, didn't want it. No one's ever commented. In fact, like, Nancy Allen and Tom Skerritt's agents flat out, like, turned down any request about it. And again, I'm sure it's just because there was a child involved who passed away and people are trying to be sensitive, but it's a scary movie and it just adds fuel to the rumor fire. So I just wanted to bring that up because I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, All right. Well, thank you, Mindy. I was like thinking all week, what are you going to tell me? (laughs) What is your story going to be? I had no idea. But this was, um, yeah, you surprised me. I did not think of this at all. And I thought for sure you'd know. I thought you would have guessed for sure. Or you'd be like, no, that I don't know if that like or something. I was like, I don't know, but. This is true. Well, I was to me. thinking more true crime. I wasn't thinking of like mysterious death, but you did say that it was kind of involving horror movies with a little bit of true crime, with mystery, with blah blah blah. So yeah, I was stumped. You stumped me. Poor little innocent Mindy realized, you know, it's hard to hear about a kid your age who got really sick. And when you get sick, your parents take care of you. And in this case, like that didn't happen. And it just, yeah, I remember us all being totally fucked up about it, which sounded odd to say just now because it was an actress we didn't know, but we were fans. So, uh, yeah, but it's been over 30 years. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So, yes. That it, please keep Heather's memory alive. That is the tale of Heather O'Rourke. Sharon, I'm glad I was, was able to surprise you, but uh, my parents are really excited about your story, but I'm more excited because I don't know how I don't know anything about this, but please do tell. I don't know how you didn't either. Um, my, I, I came from a family where I watched the news a lot because um, my 
brother and I would go to my grandparents' house after school where they would watch us because my mom was a single mom and she worked a lot. And my grandparents were (laughs) those people that put the news on from like 3.30 all the way until the 10 o'clock news. And then they would watch Johnny Carson. But yeah, they just had the news playing like all day long. So I would sit on the couch sometimes and watch the news with them. And this story was like, the biggest thing in the news when I was growing up that really just like changed my life and got me super interested in true crime and well let's just get into it yeah this is the disappearance and the murder of seven-year-old Jacqueline DeWallaby she disappeared on September 10th 1988 from Midlothian Illinois a southwestern suburb of Chicago, just seven miles south of where I grew up and where I actually lived for two years of my life as an adult. Put a pin in that. We'll get to that later. So before we get into my case, I want to give uh, credit to my references. I used uh, a bunch of different websites, unsolvedmysteries.com, abc7chicago.com, Wikipedia, Reddit, chicagotribune.com, uh, what else? Law, Northwestern, EDU, FletcherMarple.com, BizarreAndGrotesque.com, and FindAGrave.com. I also want to give a trigger warning. This story will contain child murder, sexual assault against a child, um, and also an adult, and uh, possible child abuse. Well, definite child abuse, but here we go. Jacqueline DeWallaby was born May 17, 1981. Jacqueline was described as a sweet, innocent little girl who was very shy and had big, beautiful blue eyes. Her parents were Jimmy and Cynthia Guess. Jacqueline's father, Jimmy, who admitted to being in and out of trouble as a kid, said he met Cynthia when she was 13 or 14 years old at a roller skating rink where he worked. They dated for seven years, then married after Cynthia became pregnant with Jacqueline. Cynthia and Jimmy had separated a year after marriage before Jacqueline was born. I didn't want anything to do with her, Jimmy said of Cynthia. It was a bitter divorce. Eventually, Jimmy moved to Florida to do construction work. Jacqueline never knew her biological father in her short life, but Jimmy said he was kept informed about her through his mother, Jackie, who was close to Jacqueline. Cynthia eventually remarried a man named David DeWallaby. David adopted his stepdaughter Jacqueline six months after he married Cynthia. Cynthia and David also had a son together, Jacqueline's half-brother named David Jr., or as they called him, Davy. On the morning of September 10th, 1988, David and Davy awoke early. They made sure to stay quiet and not wake the rest of the family, including David's mother, who lived in the basement. However, at 7.15 a.m., David discovered the front door to their house was partially open. At first, he thought that maybe his mother had come home earlier and left the door open. Her car wasn't in the driveway, so he just assumed that she left again while leaving the door open. Two hours later, Cynthia went into Jacqueline's room to wake her. However, Jacqueline was not in her room. They initially assumed that she was out playing with friends, 
And after searching the home, David and his son went out to search for Jacqueline, but they could find no trace of her. When Cynthia went into Jacqueline's room, she discovered that Jacqueline's comforter was also missing, which was unusual as Jacqueline would not have taken her comforter to go outside with her, especially, you know, she's going to go play with her friends. I'm trying so hard not to say anything. I'm just listening very intently. That's okay. I mean, if you have something to say or comment that's like relevant to the story you can no, I'm basically just enthralled and slightly terrified already so um, I'm like breathless waiting okay yeah when Cynthia walked down her driveway to go to a neighbor's house she noticed that the basement window had been broken it appeared an intruder had used it to gain entrance to the house and I just want to say that this story has a lot of resemblance to John Bonet's story. You'll see a lot of comparisons, but John Bonet happened, I think, 10 years later than this. Okay. All right. I'm in it. All right. Oh, God. It appeared an intruder had used the basement window to gain entrance into the house. Within hours, the police and the FBI were at the Dwalaby household waiting for a ransom demand. However, no call came. Search parties were organized, but Jacqueline was nowhere to be found. Cynthia and David named Jacqueline's natural father, Jimmy, as a likely suspect. Years earlier, they said Jimmy had broken into the home of Cynthia's parents in an unsuccessful attempt to snatch Jacqueline away after a bitter custody battle. But unbeknownst to the Dewalabies, Jimmy Guess had been in prison in Florida for almost two years. On May 23, 1988, Three and a half months before Jacqueline's disappearance, he was sentenced to seven years in prison for two counts of sexual battery, threatening with a deadly weapon, and one count of attempted sexual battery. Guests that the incident involved a woman he had met at a bar. In September 1988, Guests said he learned from an FBI agent that Jacqueline had disappeared. I cried for two or three days in the prison chapel, he said. Officials of the medium security prison put him in closed custody for four months out of apparent concern he might try to escape. Guest said he had been looking forward to the day when Jacqueline would be old enough to visit him in Florida. She was my child, Guest said. That was the only thing I thought I did right in my life. Aww. Back in Midlothian, police found no sign of forced entry into the Dewalaby home and said Jacqueline, who was only four feet tall, couldn't have opened the front door herself because of an inside bolt that was on the door that was above her reach. The Dewalabies contended that an intruder entered through a broken basement window. Investigators believed that the basement window was broken from the inside of the house to make it look like an intruder was responsible. There was more glass found on the ground outside than inside the basement. A police investigation also found that dust on the inside windowsill was undisturbed. David's mother, who lived in the house, and Wallaby, told the police that numerous objects on the floor directly below the window had also not been disturbed either. From the beginning, the investigation into Jacqueline's disappearance was two-pronged. While they pursued the possibility of a kidnapping, they began a detailed questioning of both Cynthia and David. The questions involved what the Dewalabies did the morning of Jacqueline's disappearance. 
Cynthia Dwalaby made inconsistent statements when questioned about how she discovered that Jacqueline was missing. On September 10th, she told the police she discovered Jacqueline missing at 9.40 a.m. Later, she said that her husband was already out searching for Jacqueline when she awoke at 9.30 a.m. Cynthia Dwalaby's sister-in-law, however, told police that Cynthia had called her September 10th to cancel a ceramics class and told her she was about to awake the children. There was no time on that call, but telephone, or at least Cynthia didn't give a time, but telephone records showed that the call took place at 9.46 a.m. What the fuck? And, you know, I can see inconsistencies because when you wake up in the morning and you're about to go about your daily routine you're not necessarily looking at the clock to be like okay this is the exact time I woke up and this is the exact time I started making breakfast and this is when I did this oh yeah you know and it's not until something like this happens where you know you discover your child is missing I can see how you would get confused and you're you're stressed and you're frazzled and you're gonna make mistakes you're human Oh, for sure. And you're panicking. And I mean, I don't even know what's going on most days until like 11 a.m. And I like am working at 830 in the morning. So I can't even imagine being under stress of your child going missing. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I mean, they have to pay attention to to everything, the police. But there's inconsistencies like this. I, I don't think it's extremely unusual yeah so on september 11th the day after jacqueline's disappearance david agreed to take a polygraph exam at fbi headquarters in chicago an agent told david that he had passed the exam three days passed with no new leads david was asked to take another polygraph the results of this test were inconclusive with the examiner claiming that david was uncooperative David, however, claimed that the examiner told him to answer yes to every question, including the question, did you kill your daughter? To which David said he refused to respond with a yes. And this was because he was told by the polygraph examiner that they wanted to calibrate the machine to see if it was working. Yeah. So they're basically like, just lie. Say say the... uh, opposite answer to the truth for all these questions yeah we're uh calibrating the old uh (laughs) yeah like yeah that was a smart move on his part not to answer (laughs) i agree i think it was a smart move and i don't know if this is something that they i'm assuming you know maybe they do this with like what is your name what is your address you know obvious questions but telling you to say yes to you killed your daughter and think that that's like somehow not going to be turned against him later. Like, yeah, I I would have done the same thing if I was him. I would not have said yes to that. So after the second polygraph, David was interrogated for five hours before an officer interrupted and told him that Jacqueline's body was found. David believed that the police officers were lying in order to get him to confess However, when he came home to find Cynthia crying, he knew that the news was true. On September 14, 1988, Jacqueline's body was discovered in a vacant field amongst weeds and brush in Blue Island, Illinois. Found at the scene was Jacqueline's comforter that her mom reported missing from her room and her nightgown, along with rope that was around Jacqueline's neck. Pubic hairs were found on the bedspread that covered Jacqueline's body and on underwear found near the body. 
An autopsy was unable to determine when Jacqueline was murdered, but it was determined that her death was attributed to strangulation. On September 17th, she was laid to rest. Mm. The investigation now involved the Illinois State Police, the Midlothian Police, the Blue Island Police. It doesn't say that the FBI were still involved, but they were possibly still involved in the case. They're always involved still. For two months, the police gathered evidence and built a case against the DeWallabies. So, two days after Jacqueline's body was found, police canvassed residents of the apartments behind which Jacqueline's body was discovered. Among those interviewed was Everett Mann, who had aspired to be a police officer, but had been rejected because he suffered from bipolar disorder. Mann claimed that at about 2 a.m. on September 10th, he had seen someone with a, quote, large straight nose pulling away from what he later learned was the location of the body. He said he could not tell whether the person was a man or a woman, but thought that he or she was Caucasian. He described the car as dark colored, dark blue, navy blue, black or dark brown. He wasn't really sure. Everett was at least 75 yards away from the car and it was a dark moonless night. So, all right, I'm going to come back to this in just a second. Yeah, <laughs> I just have yeah. to read this, this next part. But later at the Midlothian police station, man was shown an array of photographs of possible suspects and asked which nose structure most resembled the one he had seen. Number four man said, which happened to be a photo of David Dwalaby. However, the photo spread that Everett was shown were frontal photographs, even though Everett said he saw the person from a side view. David's photograph was also larger than the four other photographs. Okay, so this was, let's see, two days after the body was found. So I know the police want to catch whoever murdered this poor child as soon as they can because residents of the community are going to be freaking out. Um, However, this just seems so planned by the police to have a larger photograph of David Dwalaby. And also, if man couldn't even determine whether or not he saw a man versus a woman, how did they expect him to accurately pick out one person from a lineup and say, yes, this is the person that I saw. Right. With a straight on view. With a straight on view, even though he only saw this person from the side. So luckily, someone <laughs> realized that this identification of David Dwalaby was, you know, n- not not the... Um, there was something off about it, we'll just say. <laughs> not all not all the analytics would add up exactly. It doesn't add up at all. Uh, Robert Clifford, the head of the South Suburban Prosecutions for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, was skeptical of man's identification, as he should be. <laughs> he enlisted Paul Greaves, the Blue Island police chief, to join him in an experiment. It was a reenactment of man's identification of a man with a big nose from 75 yards away. They concluded that it was impossible to see a nose structure from that distance, especially in the dark on a moonless night. Totally. Also, in subsequent interviews, man's description of the car changed. First, it had been merely dark colored. Then it became mid-sized. 
Then he described it as the latest 70s version of the Chevy Malibu. Finally, a 1979 Chevy Malibu. Needless to say, the reliability of this witness would come under intense scrutiny. A Chevy Malibu from the late 70s was not a small car. Like, that was a boat. I will take your word on that. (laughs) Oh, say anything. It's what Lloyd Dobler drives. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a boat. But most cars back then kind of were boats. They were either, like, really big or really tiny. Because then, yeah, when they remade them... Not too long after they, yeah, brought them down to size. But still, like, that would have, I feel like I would have had a better idea of the color, at least, of the car. Well, whatever. I'm going to stop guessing and let you keep telling the story. But this is crazy. Well, Cynthia DeWallaby did own a 1980 Chevy Malibu. What? However, it was light blue in color, not dark. But the police surmised that it might have somehow appeared dark because, you know, it was a very dark night that night. The car was forensically examined, but there was no evidence that a body had been transported in her car. Okay. Two other eyewitnesses claimed that they had seen Cynthia's car near the area where Jacqueline's body was found. However, these sightings were discredited as well because it was confirmed that Cynthia's car was in front of the Dwalby home at the time of the sightings. Another issue involved the basement window. A forensic analysis was done on the window to determine if it had been broken from the inside or the outside of the home. The report concluded that the window had actually been broken from the outside. Apparently, perhaps maybe to minimize noise, whoever broke the glass just punctured it and then removed several large pieces of the glass, placing them on the ground. But unfortunately, this finding was discovered a little too late. Based solely, well, based mostly on Everett Mann's purported identification of David and the assumption that the basement window had been broken into from the inside, Patrick O'Brien, the head of the office's felony trial division, obtained a grand jury indictment for both David and Cynthia on November 22nd, 1988, charging both of them with murder of their daughter and adopted daughter and concealing a homicide. David and Cynthia DeWallaby were arrested immediately and charged with Jacqueline's murder. Cynthia was also now two months pregnant. Oh my God. The couple both insisted that they were innocent. What the fuck? (laughs) In April 1990, David and Cynthia DeWallaby went on trial for Jacqueline's murder. The prosecution had built its case mainly on circumstantial evidence. So now let's talk about the trial and the case against the Dewalabies. The prosecution questioned whether it was possible for someone to enter the house without disturbing the items below the basement window. There were several items, including a nightstand, towel rack, TV tray, and makeup tray, all located beneath the basement window that was broken into. What were they using that area for? Well, his mother, David's mother, lived in the basement. Oh, right. So, and I'll get to it in a second, but you can actually see video of the basement, the way it was set up. Just put a pin in that. I will literally get to that in like two seconds. But it's a weird uh, mixture of things. Yeah, no, it it was basically set up to be his mom's bedroom. So none of those items were disturbed. 
To prove this was possible, David shot a video showing a neighbor entering through the basement window. The neighbor was able to wedge his leg on the wall and enter without disturbing anything. You can watch this video in an old episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which we'll talk more about Unsolved Mysteries later. But uh, yeah, I found this on YouTube and yeah, his neighbor was able to slide right in, put his foot on the wall and like push himself off and just kind of like hop down over all the things that were set up under the window. So it was was possible. That's why you shouldn't have. <laughs> so you shouldn't have a basement or basement windows. <laughs> you should basically just live in a fortress that's like fifty feet off the ground, where there's only one door in and out. Preferably a moat with uh, electric eels and piranhas around the entire structure. Absolutely. And lava. <laughs> and no stairs or elevators into the normal unit. Just you, you get up with a pulley system and a bucket. <laughs> That's how it works. Anyway, sorry. It's a ni- nightmare for bringing groceries up, but wor- worth it. Your safety is worth it. Anyway, let's get. I want to hear about this jury thing. This is not looking good. Jurors rejected the evidence by the defense that an intruder broke into the home and kidnapped and killed seven year old Jacqueline. A slender-built juror, the only one on the panel who was able to climb through the narrow 14-by-28-inch window that the defense contends a kidnapper entered, helped convince the jury that no one entered the house the night Jacqueline disappeared. The only way the juror could maneuver through the window was feet first and on his stomach. He couldn't get through the opening without removing any dust on the windowsill. Police testified to finding an even layer of dust on the sill. And when the wiry juror dropped five feet down to the floor, as an intruder to the Dewalby home would have had to have done, he knocked over a flimsy metal rack under the window. We gave it a nice dent, one of the jurors said of the rack. But police had found nothing disturbed inside the Dewalby basement. Prosecutors contend evidence shows no intruders entered the home the night of Jacqueline's death. The Dewalabies maintained that they did lock both their front and back doors before going to bed that night. And the next morning, David Dewalaby contends that the front door was open. Other evidence from the prosecution included a blood-stained pillow found in Jacqueline's bedroom and head hairs similar to Jacqueline's found in the trunk of her parents' car. The defense attorney said the Dewalabies would give authorities hair and blood samples. Prosecutors also asked for saliva samples. However, the blood on the pillow and the hairs could not be confirmed as coming from Jacqueline. Here's where things get a little more dark and here's where things look even worse for Cynthia and David Dwalaby. Jacqueline's brother Davey claimed that Jacqueline got spanked a lot by their parents. Prosecutors said that Davey saw his mother on past occasions hit his sister about the shoulders with a broom, belt, or rope. Cynthia Dwalaby's attorney, Lawrence Hyman, argued that if she spanked her daughter, it wasn't relevant to a murder charge. He also noted that Jacqueline's brother had made the allegations after he had been taken from his parents and constantly questioned by psychologists in the presence of police and prosecutors during a five-day stay at Mount Sinai Hospital. So who knows what really went on? You know, he was 
taken away from his parents, his home, his sister was just murdered. Um, not sure if that was information that was disclosed to him as he was quite young at the time. He was being questioned yeah. by psychologists who, who were, you know, total strangers to him. There was police surrounding him. I mean, can you even imagine staying in a hospital with all this going on and not being in your house or being with your family? And I mean, some of the things he might have said definitely could have been made up or they could have been like putting words into his mouth to get him to say things that weren't true. Who knows? Right. And we know that like people like from war or even confessions with cops like if you're sitting there being like yelled at for so many hours and told that you did something eventually you're going to want to just say you did it to get out of there really and if oh my god that's awful another argument from the prosecution was that david dewallaby's mother Anne and an undisclosed neighbor identified the rope found curled around jacqueline's neck as the same one they had seen david jr playing with numerous times which came from the dewallaby's garage Oh, boy. There was also evidence of violence in the Dewalabi's house. Photos of the interior of the house revealed signs of, quote, great violence. Fist marks through hollow core doors and drywall jumped out at you in the photos. The Dewalabi's never testified during the trial. Before closing arguments, the judge addressed both legal teams without the jury present. He decided that the case against David Dewalabi would continue as scheduled. However, he felt that there was insufficient evidence for Cynthia's case to be put to the jury. Cynthia had been acquitted of the murder by the judge. Although the only substantial difference in the evidence against her and that of her husband, David, was the purported identification of him by Everett Mann, which is (laughs) shoddy evidence at best. Right, yeah. After the trial against David Dewalaby, the jury deliberated for nearly 14 hours over three days. They had waited through 12 days of testimony and more than 200 exhibits before finding David Dewalaby guilty of first-degree murder. The evidence of the fist marks on the doors and the walls in the Dewalaby house and also telephone records suggesting a quick cover-up played a major role in convincing the jury of David's guilt, according to the jury's forewoman, Phyllis Halverson. According to Halverson, the jury took only one vote in finding Dewalaby guilty of killing his young adopted daughter. Whoa. I know there are people who feel we brought in the wrong decision, Halverson said. God help us if we did. But we did everything we possibly could to find this man innocent, and we could not. Prosecutors had never pointed out to the jurors the damage done to the house, but the inference that the jury apparently drew from those photographs was that only a hot-headed father could have done that kind of damage. And a father with a kind of temper like that, it could result in killing. On May 3rd, 1990, David was sentenced to 45 years in prison, 40 years for murder and five years for concealing a homicide. Had the jury been allowed to decide on Cynthia Dewalaby's involvement in the killing, Halverson said, I think we would have probably convicted her of concealment, but I don't know if we would have convicted her of murder one. Halverson said she had found Cynthia Dewalaby's frequent crying during the trial unconvincing. Her crying was at all the right moments, she said. 
Cynthia and friends of the family created a grassroots movement in an attempt to get David released. The movement caught the attention of legal journalist David Protest. In several articles, he criticized the conviction of David Dwalaby. In July 1990, the Chicago Tribune published a two-part series by Protest based on the interviews with the Dwalabys. As a result, one of the trial jurors contacted Protest, telling him that she regretted the verdict but had caved in due to pressure from other jurors. Oh, my God. Protest took the story to Paul Hogan, an investigative reporter for WMAQ-TV, Chicago's NBC-owned and operated channel, which gave the story major play. I probably <laughs> spent hours watching that as a kid. Um, in the months ahead, Protest and Hogan worked together on other investigative stories about the case. They discovered the undisclosed experiment that had led Clifford and Greaves to conclude that it was impossible to see a nose structure from 75 yards away. And it was apparently not brought up at all in the trial that there was this experiment, which would have been impossible to see that. So I'm not sure uh, if that was a fault of the um, the defense or maybe the judge didn't allow that evidence. I'm not sure why it was not included in the trial. At least I don't think it was. It seems from other things that I've read um, that I'm going into now, it seems like it was not discussed at all during the trial. Hogan also broadcast an interview with Mann who noted that O'Brien, the lead prosecutor, had a nose more prominent than David's. If O'Brien's photo had been in the array he was shown, Mann proclaimed on camera that he would have identified O'Brien instead of David Dwalaby. Whoa. However, there would be no retrial. On October 30th, 1991, the Illinois Appellate Court unanimously reversed David's conviction without the possibility of a retrial, holding that Judge Neville had erred in not directing a verdict in David's case, as he had done with Cynthia. David Dwalaby was released from prison on November 13th, 1991, after spending 583 days behind bars, counting 24 days in jail after his 1988 arrest. However, some investigators are still convinced that David Dwalaby is responsible for Jacqueline's murder. Nine months later, after he was released from prison, NBC's Unsolved Mysteries broadcast a segment on the case, which resulted in a tip on an earlier suspect in the case, which, Mindy, comes back to your question and brings us to other possible suspects. The first suspect being Jacqueline's uncle, Timothy Guess, the brother of Jacqueline's biological father. Timothy Guess was a paranoid schizophrenic and had provided a false alibi for the night of Jacqueline's disappearance. Guess had told police and the FBI that he had spent the entire night at an all-night restaurant in South Suburban Harvey. Two waitresses had corroborated the alibi at the time, but they told Protests and Hogan that, in fact, <gasps> Guess had been there only briefly around 9.30 p.m., they said they had lied because they believed that the Dewalabies were guilty and they did not want to get involved. Oh, my God. Which they, they pretty much got themselves involved and led to, I mean, I'll tell you who I think did it after we cover all, all our uh, options. But, yeah, they, they helped convict a man of murder, whether he's guilty or not. 
you know, no one knows for, for sure, a hundred percent sure. I don't think he is. Um, but yeah, they definitely got involved <laughs> by, by lying. It was just really inconvenient for them. So they were like, well, we're just going to tell you what you want to hear. So you don't have to bug us and we can go back to doing our thing. Oh my God. That's infuriating and horrifying. Yeah. And it's really nice for them to make judgment judgments on the parents without knowing all the evidence that was involved and decide they were going to lie because they thought the parents were guilty. Like, how fucked up is that? Several customers who had been at the restaurant who had never been questioned by the police also said that guests had not been there. In addition, protests in Hogan learned that another waitress at the restaurant, Margaret Murphy, lived in the apartment complex where Everett Mann lived where Jacqueline's body was found, and that guest had often driven her home. (gasps) Murphy told Hogan that she had never been questioned by police, but before the Dwalaby trial, prosecutors had instructed her not to talk to the defense lawyers. Oh, my God. And, yeah, so it sounds like between the alibis who lied, between the police not questioning everyone that they could have or should have been questioning uh, by that photograph that they presented of David Dwalaby being much larger than the other photographs in that lineup. Also, the prosecution. I mean, they were looking to convict the parents, whether or not they had enough evidence or they just needed to create evidence or whatever. Like in the JonBenet Ramsey case, there was just a lot of shit that was fucked up by a lot of different people. So... But, like, this is, like, blatant. Well, it happens a lot. I mean, yeah, right? No, I know. I don't know why I'm like, what? But still, it's fucked up to hear about it. On December 17th, 1992, protests and a colleague conducted a taped interview with guests who spoke freely about his mental illness. He said he had begun hearing voices when he was a young child, and he had been in and out of mental institutions and suffered repeated blackouts and had taken various drugs, legal and illegal, for much of his life. Since age 16, Guest said, he had been guided by a spirit who, quote, gives me psychic powers, powers that enabled him to precisely describe the layout and interior of the Dwalaby home where he had never been. When asked how to get to Jacqueline's room, he said, I walked past Davy's room. Quickly adding, that was the spirit talking, not me. I didn't say nothing. I just released information. (laughs) So, Guess adamantly insisted that he had been at the Harvey restaurant the entire night that Jacqueline disappeared. When asked why customers and waitresses would say otherwise, he explained, quote, maybe I was invisible that day. The spirit can help me do that. I was there physically, but no one could notice me. Oh, man. Oh, God. On January 4th, 1993, a spokesman for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office announced that the investigation into Jacqueline's murder had been reopened, but despite mounting questions, guests never faced any charges, and he died in 2002. So I'm not really sure what actually happened there. I mean, I personally think he was the one that murdered Jacqueline. My jaw is like open right now, literally. I don't know if they ever did any DNA evidence on him to see if any of the hairs that they found on the comforter matched up to him or the blood that was found on her um, 
on her bedspread because they said that the blood stain, not the um the bedspread, but the pillow, they had a blood stained pillow that was in her room. I'm picturing that maybe if he broke the window that night, oh yeah, he could have possibly cut himself when he went to take Jacqueline from her bed. Maybe he got some blood on the pillow. You know, nothing that I read about them ever testing that to see if the blood matched him or the hair that they found matched his. You know, there was pubic yeah. hair that was found at the scene of the crime. Obviously, that did not belong to Jacqueline. You know, so... Which, that's uh, fucked up. Did you find anything about... Is that true that he had never actually been in his brother's home? Or was that... Com- yeah, that's what I I, heard, I read. No, it's not his brother's home. His brother, they had gotten divorced. His brother had moved to Florida. This was his his ex-sister-in-law's and her new husband's home. Yeah, I, I know what you meant, though. Minnie. Thank no. you, yeah. According to what I read, he was never in the Duwalami home, but somehow he was able to tell the police the exact layout of their house. How? A spirit. A spirit. Or maybe you murdered Jacqueline Duwalami, and that's how you knew. Well, there's one other suspect, Perry Hernandez. He is a convicted sex offender who had committed a similar abduction almost exactly one year to the day after Jacqueline's murder. Perry, who lived in Blue Island, which is the town where Jacqueline's body was found, abducted his seven-year-old neighbor from her bed at night while her parents, four brothers, and sisters were all sleeping. (gasps) So there were six other people in the house. Her twin brother was sleeping in another bed only three feet away. Perry carried her in her nightgown about a mile away from their home before raping her under a railroad bridge by the Calumet Sag Canal. The Duwalabies always contended that an intruder, perhaps Hernandez, broke into their Midlothian home, kidnapped Jacqueline, and killed her. The prosecution hammered at differences between the two incidents, but the defense stressed its main point that a young child can be snatched from their home in the middle of the night, right under their parents' noses. I mean, clearly. (laughs) Hernandez's girlfriend also said that Hernandez occasionally stayed in her apartment where she lives in Midlothian, about five blocks away from the Duwalby home. Hernandez steadfastly denied any involvement in the Duwalby killing. And even though there is a lot of similarities between Jacqueline's case and the kidnapping of Hernandez's neighbor, Evidence found on Jacqueline's body did not match him, and police ruled out Hernandez as a suspect. In October 1990, Hernandez was sentenced to 45 years in prison by a Markham Courthouse judge who called the crime a parent's worst nightmare. This is for the abduction of his his neighbor. In sentencing, Associate Judge John Wazalewski also tacked on 35 years for four other crimes, including the attempted rape and beating of a woman passenger on a Metro train station platform. Whoa. So hopefully he is still in prison today because what a fucking horrible piece of shit and he should not be walking the streets. So where do things stand as of today? After David and Cynthia were both acquitted, no one else has ever been charged. To me, I kind of want to know what was done about Jacqueline's uncle 
who has passed away. I want to know like how much did they really investigate? Did they do DNA testing? And I wonder if that evidence even still exists because stuff does tend to like quote get lost or go missing over time, you know, because technology is so much better now. I would be totally interested if there was any way they could read. How did random hairs end up in her bed or on her pillow? Like, what the fuck? Or pubic hairs in her underwear. I mean, yeah, I don't know if any of that was ever tested. Oh, my God. he passed away in 2002. So if it was him, I mean, he's gone. But yes, it would still be nice to have answers. And hopefully, Dave and Cynthia pressed the police to look into that further. I'm hoping they at least received a satisfied answer, even though maybe we don't have anything. Maybe it was never released to the public. Hopefully they got a little bit of closure about whether or not it was him. I guess if it wasn't, someone out there still could be at large. But the Dewalby case files are rarely touched at the Midlothian Police Headquarters, and Jacqueline's murder is officially labeled as unsolved. Police say there hasn't been any new leads in years, and even if new evidence were to surface further implicating Cynthia and David, they could not be tried under the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution. Right. David and Cynthia Dwalaby are still searching for Jacqueline's real killer, and they now live 40 miles away from where the murder happened and have since changed their last name. Oh my God. In 1996, CBS actually aired a two-part made-for-TV movie about this case, which you can also find on YouTube. I watched the first part, and um, it was fine. I mean, it was literally kind of like reading through all the newspaper reports I read. It was pretty much verbatim for everything that I've found in this research. I didn't feel like I needed to watch the second half of it. But if you're interested, it is out there. And it stars Shannon Doherty and Kevin Dillon as Cynthia and David Dwalaby. It's called Gone in the Night, and it's based on the book by the same title. Wow. Jacqueline would have been 39 years old this May. All right. So here is a really weird personal connection that I have to this case. As I stated, I remember hearing about this case when it happened. I was basically around the same age as Jacqueline when it happened, and I remember seeing it on the news a lot from basically 1988 to about 1991 when David was was released from prison and even beyond then. And I always remembered thinking how scary it was that a child could be taken away from their home in the middle of the night while they're sleeping and murdered. At this point, I was already watching horror movies. I had seen... (laughs) The Shadow Man in my room when I was little, which we have talked about in a past episode. So now on top of all that, I had to worry about murderers breaking into my house in the middle of the night. And I never forgot the story. It just always stuck with me. And I never forgot what Jacqueline looked like. She was a beautiful little girl with dark hair, big blue eyes, freckles. There was one photograph that they always showed in the news and in newspapers. And like that image just stuck with me. Mm Mm-hmm. As I said, I thought about this case often in my life, and when I moved to Midlothian, where she lived, to live with my then-boyfriend, I was like, oh, shit. Like, oh, wow, this is the town where Jacqueline Dewalaby grew up, and this is where, you know, she was abducted from. And then the town where they found her body, Blue Island, I actually 
spent like tons of time there. I actually dated a guy from Blue Island and had a bunch of friends there. So I like always hung out in that area as well. Um, but when I was living in Midlothian, I never thought to Google where she lived. Like that never came across my mind to do that or that I would even find that information. Uh, when I started doing research for this case though, last week I Googled where her house was at, not knowing if I would actually find out where her address was, but you can find it online. And I almost had an anxiety attack when I saw that not only did I live on the same street as her, but her house was only four houses down from where I lived for basically two years and I had no fucking idea. Mind you, the house that I lived in, I've also talked about this on the show before as well. This is the house where the man who lived there before my boyfriend bought the house died in our living room and haunted the fuck out of the place until my boyfriend (laughs) basically was like, stop, (laughs) please stop. I can't take this anymore. And I always felt when I was there that someone was watching me in that house, even when I was home alone. I mean, you can hear all these stories on previous episode that we did. Um, It was episode 17 of our podcast. A lot of good stories there if you want to check that out. But besides that, that area is just not the safest place to live. It's not really the best area. There was actually a night when our neighbor chased a man out of his yard that was trying to break into his house. And the man jumped over the fence and ran through our yard. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. So on top of all like the weird stories that happened while I lived in that house and all like the ghost stories that I heard about before I moved into the house, if you told me that Jacqueline DeWallaby's house, like the little girl who got kidnapped and murdered that you were obsessed with, that I was obsessed with most of my life, lived basically four houses down from me. I think I just would have like moved the fuck out of that house ASAP. <laughs> but I literally walked or drove past the DeWallaby house hundreds of times while I lived there without even knowing it. Wow. Because it's sunny out right now, I feel safe saying that I'd be like, oh, I'd probably try and like make contact because maybe she wanted help. But come like 1130 tonight, I'm going to be like, I really regret even thinking that because I would have been terrified too. (laughs) But holy shit, that's crazy. And then also on top of finding out that I lived just like four houses down from her, I was texting with my friend Jelena who has also been on our show before when we did our episode about Indigo Children, uh, episode number four, if you want to listen to that episode. But I was texting her that we were going to be doing this episode and that I was going to be talking about Jacqueline DeWallaby. And I asked her if she remembered that case growing up because she actually grew up in Blue Island. And she was like, oh, yeah, my dad's side of the family is related to the DeWallabies. Oh, my God. And I was like, what the fuck? I mean, I know it's not something that would just come up during casual conversation, but like the coincidences regarding this case, like now that I did the research into it are kind of strange. That's totally strange. I don't know, man. I feel like there's this weird energy that you seem to pick up on and like then we're gravitating towards people that were somewhat related. Maybe, I don't know. That is crazy. Oh my God, this is crazy. 
Yeah, I don't know where the synchronicities are leading me, but I honestly, I really think her um, her uncle did it. So I don't think I'm supposed to like find her killer or anything like that. Right. I think he's well, since passed, but but you're telling her story and it's getting out to more people. Maybe that's that's what needs to happen, or at least just to honor her memory. But the, oh my gosh, that is just. I cannot believe that you like were in such close circles and didn't know until like just recently. You must have freaked the fuck out. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, she did. She told me you you told me a little bit about it, but then you were like, no, 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 no I'm going to tell you when we we do the show. So I've been like dying to hear about th- that. Is crazy. And as we mentioned, or as I mentioned in my story. Um, there was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that features the Dewalbies, but Mindy and I have been watching the new Unsolved Mysteries. Oh my God. And um, yeah, it's on Netflix now in case you did not know. It originally aired from 87 to 2002 and then again from 2008 to 2010. Robert Stack hosted the original series from 87 to 02 and then he passed away in 03 uh rest in peace robert stack he oh was, yes oh my god he made that show he so really great. did he totally did yeah then dennis farina hosted in 2008 to 2010 which i don't think i ever watched the episodes where he hosted the show i was, did you? I was just gonna say the same thing i never did i kind of gave up on it just because the music and then robert stack's voice just set the tone and I was terrified like from the opening like note of the theme song nobody could talk yeah I know and I I was asking my mom too I was like have you been watching the new unsolved mysteries on Netflix and she was like I never watched the old one and I was like really I'm like so did I watch that by myself (laughs) which just seemed odd because I always thought I watched it with her, but yeah, maybe I was just watching it by myself because I was obsessed with that show. It scared the fuck out of me. That doesn't seem odd to me. You um, might have come over to my house at one point because I do. Rem- we, I watched it with my parents, I know, but they would always be like, are you too scared? And I'd be like, no, but then that theme song would just like haunt my nightmares. <laughs> and it was awesome. The new season is on Netflix it's 10 episodes, but only six are available right now. Yeah. Um, so, of course, Mindy and I binged the first six episodes, and I can't wait for the next four to come out. I think the first episode is my favorite. We're not going to give away any spoilers right here, but the first episode sucked me in immediately. It's super creepy. I couldn't stop thinking about the case itself because it was just like a what the fuck. Like, how, how did any of this, like, happen? Check it out. If you haven't seen it. Yeah, they I really think they've done a good job bringing it back. Sharon had commented because we've been texting all week about it, that there really isn't a host necessarily, which I think was a good choice. I will say that just because Robert Stack is so iconic, but they they've done a great job for it with it. And I was it the second episode, Sharon, that I was like, what the fuck? Like I said, I texted you like it. Their, their cases, the cases they picked, everything. Yeah, it is a doozy. It is really engrossing and terrifying. Whoever made the decision to just not have a host, because I know there's a lot of people who are talking shit about it 
I was what? one of them when it was first announced. And if you haven't watched the new season yet, because you're a huge fan of the original and you're just prepared to hate the new season, mm. it's actually really good. And I think the, like, as Mindy said, the decision not to have a host because you cannot replace Robert Stack. I mean, his voice, him walking out of the shadows, wearing that trench coat, oh, the infamous God. music, oh. it's, it's so iconic that no matter how good the replacement may have been, you know that people, there would have been backlash. So the best was for there just not to be a host or a narrator at all, but the people involved in the stories are the ones telling the story. And it's really well done. Like, it's really well, like, directed and curated. And, yeah, I I, yeah. They, I really think they did a good job. They retained the original shit that used to scare the crap out of me from the original show even when nothing was happening but like have modernized it and they've done a great job so yeah I wouldn't be afraid to watch it if you're a fan of the old show yeah each episode's basically set up like a mini documentary so um the original show you would have multiple stories over like a one you know one hour actually with commercials like 45 minutes so this is just like one one hour episode just one story so yeah, the way they set it up, it is like little mini documentaries. And yeah, the music's basically the same. Um, I was kind of worried about that because I was yes. thinking like, oh, either they're going to replace the music, which if it's going to be Unsolved Mysteries, you have to have the original music. But I was like, oh, what if they like modernize it too much where it's like this horrible remix? <laughs> Yeah, right. Or like Green Day is playing it now or something. I don't know why Green Day <laughs> came to mind. But yeah, I love this. They kept the theme, but they also did a great job with that, too. And I think it might freak me out more than the original, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's just those chords and those notes that I'm like, oh, God. And like the reenactments are also kind of like oddly similar to the original. Yes. Like the original didn't have like any frills. It wasn't overly dramatized. And it's kind of set up the same exact way. And then, you know, they'll cut to like a disturbing shot of an empty field or like a creek or something that just like gives you chills. And then, you know, obviously it's interspersed with interviews from the actual people involved in the cases and photos and home movies and whatever. Which, yeah, I really like that we see more of the actual people and more of, yeah, like the original imagery because I... I will never forget that episode from the original series about the father who built the bunk beds for his kids and the wood he used was supposed like they thought it might have been haunted and the the kids sleeping in the bunk beds every night would like see a witch behind their bedroom door and uh, because it was like one of their like supernatural episodes that they would do every once in a while and all I know is it scared the ever living shit out of me but it was all a reenactment and I actually found these people talking about their real stories to be way creepier and scarier because it's like the real people. Yeah, it's it's good. I, I I agree. Check it out. Besides the one UFO story, I think every other story was like a a missing person case or a murder case. And there was even one episode that was all in French with subtitles. So I kind of like that they're including international mysteries as I, well. Yes, I was like... Okay, they're really putting thought into this. I like it. And it's a good story, too. So we both recommend it. Check it out. If you were skeptical, I think you'll like it, even if you're a fan of the original like we were. So, All right, well, I 
think that's going to do it for this week. Um, if you have any ghost stories, uh, scary stories, UFO stories, abduction stories that you want to share with us, uh, please write to us. You can email us at whorestalkhorror at gmail.com. If you are able to, please subscribe to our Patreon. You can have early access to episodes, hear exclusive episodes, or see exclusive posts, and possibly receive cool gifts. And Lastly, I, I may or may not post some really nerdy clippings that I made when I was a kid about Heather O'Rourke, so if that's any incentive, I am fully <laughs> happy to put my pride aside for the you know, greater cause. Do it. Totally do it. I want to see those. Lastly, we hope you are all still staying safe out there. We hope you're all healthy. Uh, please continue to wear your masks. Numbers are climbing every day in most states. Um, so, yeah, just be kind to each other. Help each other. Wear your mask. It's maybe a little inconvenient for you but you could be helping save someone's life by doing it absolutely or your own and you're not being a dick so just be good people (laughs) and as always thanks Thanks for for getting getting creepy creepy with us sharon do you want a beer Uh, oh my god